0: Well, good morning. Hope that you guys are uh, doing well today. It's so great to see you, be in person, to be able to sing in the same room together. Uh, Thanks for uh, being here. If you're uh, tuning in with us online, just wanted to welcome you as well. We miss you. We uh, wish that you were here in this room, but thanks for engaging with us uh, online as well. Well, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter one? Colossians chapter one, and we're gonna be in verses 15 through uh, 20 this morning. And as you guys are turning there, just curious, I wonder how many people in this room uh, wear contacts or glasses? Just a show of hands here. Yeah, a lot of us. So uh, so I, I wear contacts. I have uh, most of my uh, adult life. And uh, since last week, I talked about flossing, kind of went after Dennis a little bit. Let's talk about that experience going to the optometrist. That is kind of a, a bizarre, kind of a weird uh, experience. I remember the first time I went there, um, it felt like uh, they were having me do all these games with them that were impossible to win, right? Like the first game, they, they put you down in that, that chair, and, and they put these letters on the opposite wall, and, and they're, they're really tiny. And they say, hey, can you name and list all of the letters that you see? oh, but you need to cover up one of your eyes, right? And so I'm up there, I can barely see them. I'm kind of guessing. I'm like, man, this shouldn't be this hard. There aren't that many letters in the alphabet. Surely I'm guessing some of these right. Well, I got a lot of them wrong. And so then they had me play this other game where they uh, had me in this chair and they put this device near my face um, so that I could see different images. And they wanted me to tell them uh, which image was, was more clear, image one or image Two, two or one, one, or two, right? I keep going back and forth. And the first time doing it, I'm like, is this a joke? Like, they they don't look different at all to me. Like, they they look exactly the same. And it was just kind of a frustrating experience for me because I am a, a type three Enneagram. So high achiever, kind of put my worth in my performance, probably sinfully at times. And yet this was a game that I just wasn't winning. So suffice it to say, I ended up getting contacts. But before I got contacts, uh, I was convinced that I could see just fine. Like, I could see just about everything that I needed to see. And yet what led me to getting contacts was, uh, was, was through a conversation I had with my brother. My brother got contacts before I did, and I said, man, I, I thought you could see just fine. And he said, well, I did too. Uh, but let me ask you, Chris, so let me point something out. You tell me what you see. I said, okay. And he points to the ground. He's like, what, what do you see there? And I, I said, well, I see Grass. And he says, okay, but do you see the individual blades of grass there? And I said, well, no, I don't. He pointed out something else in the distance. He says, what do you see back there? I said, "Oh, I see a tree. And he says, yeah, but do you see like the individual branches on that tree? And I said, no, I don't. And I realized something in that conversation and, and through the process of getting contacts that you can see something, but not really see something. See, I ended up getting contacts And I'll never forget seeing the individual blades of grass. I remember shooting my first basketball and really seeing the rim. I remember driving and seeing billboards and signs from a far out distance. See, I wasn't just seeing. I was really seeing. My vision was corrected. See, the reality is, is that you and I, we face the same challenge spiritually, where we can settle for just seeing Jesus but not really seeing Jesus. And I've been praying all week that perhaps someone in this room, maybe someone who's listening online, might have a similar experience where perhaps you're convinced that you can see Jesus just fine, but in reality, you're spiritually squinting. And I'm praying that you have like this moment in the service here where you say in your heart, I can really see Jesus. Not just the idea of of Jesus, not just a, a blurry image of Jesus, but through the power of the Holy Spirit in Colossians 1 this morning, that you would say, I can see Jesus with 20 spiritual vision. That's my prayer. It's my hope. And I think this passage is going to help us get there. So Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And as I read God's word this morning, I'm actually going to change out the pronouns here, and I'm just going to insert the name of Jesus because that's what they refer to. And I just want you to see how Christocentric this passage is. There's 12 different mentions of Jesus in this passage, and I think that's going to be helpful as we study it this morning. So, Word of God reads this way, starting in verse 15, says, "'Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. This is the word of the Lord. This passage is beautiful. It is so beautiful, it can sing. This passage is. Paul's distillation of really the entire message of Colossians just in these few verses. I think Paul here is providing a description of Jesus that is both clear and powerful. And what he's doing is he's connecting uh, us to last week's passage, to verses 9 through 14, where Paul was praying for the believers at Colossae that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will that may know God so intimately and so personally that they know what God wants for them so that they can live a life that pleases God. Well, Paul picks up on that idea and helps us to better understand who God is by pointing to Jesus, that Paul is correcting our vision of Jesus because in order to know God's will, you need to know who Jesus actually is. So the reason why I think Paul is writing one of the most robust descriptions of Jesus's preeminence and supremacy and sufficiency really in all of the Bible is because of the very real threats that this church at Colossae was facing. We've talked about this uh, each of the last few weeks, but the danger here that this church was facing was the Colossian heresy. It was the idea that Jesus was fine, but he's not enough. Like, you can have Jesus, but you need more. You need uh, these mystic experiences. You need these spiritual visions. You need to observe some of the days. You need to even worship angels. It's basically this idea of Jesus and. Jesus is really not enough. You need more in order to be satisfied. And I love the way that Paul responds to the threat here. That Paul responds not just by declaring Jesus is preeminent, not just by announcing that Jesus is supreme, not just claiming that Jesus is sufficient, but Paul powerfully connects the preeminence of Jesus to about nine different categories here in this passage. That Paul wants us to understand that the supremacy of Jesus is not just this abstract, cold, distant doctrine but it has a power to literally impact every area of our lives. And so Paul is going to help connect the supremacy of Jesus to about nine different things here that I've placed into two large categories. So here's the first category. Paul shows us the supremacy of Christ throughout creation, verses 15 through 17. If you look at just uh, verse 15 alone, Paul begins this amazing Christocentric hymn with two great affirmations about Jesus. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he's also the firstborn of all creation. Okay, so Paul, right off the bat here, is declaring the unique and exclusive role that Jesus and Jesus alone has in order to make the invisible God visible. That Paul is laying out for us here that nothing in all of creation can fulfill this kind of role like Jesus can, in imaging God, showing us what God is like. One commentary described it this way: F.F. Bruce, he says, to call Christ the image of God is to say that in Him the being and nature of God have been perfectly manifested that in him the invisible has become visible. And I love this Greek word for image here in this verse. It means a mirror-like representation or manifestation. It's like this high-definition projection of something. We actually get the word icon from uh, this Greek word. And what it means is it exactly reflects its source in a way that does not weaken or uh, or uh, for it to project something in a feeble copy of something. Okay, so this is Jesus here. Jesus is imaging God perfectly. There was a great uh, European cathedral uh, who had uh, on its uh, ceiling this magnificent painting of God in all of its brilliant colors. The problem with this cathedral is that the cathedral was so narrow and the ceiling was so high that when visitors would come, They couldn't really see the painting of God. They had to crane their necks. And so what they did is they put this this huge mirror on the floor so that when they walked in, all they had to do was look at the mirror and they could see the image of God. What Paul is saying here in this passage is that Jesus is that perfect mirror for us. That Jesus perfectly displays exactly who God is and what he is like because he is God. Now, even though you and I are made in the image of God, we do not represent God perfectly. right? We do not share God's incommunicable attributes. We don't share God's eternality or His perfection, but Jesus does, and he perfectly manifests Him in every way. that Jesus is the exegesis of God. He's the full explanation of who God is. Author of Hebrews reiterates this idea, chapter one, verse three. says that he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Look, What this means is this is really good news for us. What this means practically is there's there's no more guessing of what God is like or who he is. All we have to do is look to Jesus. There's no more wondering, oh, I wonder what God is like or I wish God would stop hiding himself. I wish God would, would reveal himself to me He already has in the person and the work of Jesus. If you want to know who God is, look to Jesus. If you want to know what what truth is, you look to Jesus, John chapter 14, verse six. If you want to know what true love is, you look to Jesus, John chapter 15, verse 13. If you want to know what justice is, we look to Jesus, Chapter or Luke chapter four, verses 18 through 21. If you want to know what true compassion is, Looks like. We look to Jesus, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. If you want to know what forgiveness looks like, we look to Jesus, Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Look so on and so forth. Everything that you're wondering about who God is and what He is like, we have it in Jesus. That without Christ, you cannot get beyond the shadows of God. So He is supreme over creation. He does something that no one else can do by imaging. God. Well, the second affirmation of Christ, and another way that Jesus is supreme over all creation is that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, this does not mean that Jesus is part of creation. This does not mean that Jesus was the first one created out of all of creation. What this means here is that uh, Jesus is actually first in rank over creation, that he's not first in order, but he's first in rank. This refers to Jesus's supremacy in his position over all creation. Even verse 16 will tell us that Jesus has created all things. And I love this Greek word as well because we get the word prototype from it, that Jesus is the prototype of creation. He's the template or he's the pattern by which all things have been created. In fact, in a couple of verses, Paul will say that Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead, right? So this also means that this is not Jesus being uh, the first uh, in order, but he's the first in rank because others have been resurrected from the dead before Jesus. And so Jesus is the prototype of the resurrection. He's the, the template and the pattern by which the rest of us will follow, Well, Paul continues. He doesn't stop there. Remember, he's trying to to correct our vision of Jesus, and he continues on in verse 16 by showing us that Jesus is the source of all creation. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, "...for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible." Or the thrones, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. But like Jesus is the creator over all things. John 1 affirms this as well by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Look, who, who has painted the sky in all of its beauty and brilliance? It's Jesus. Who has flung every star and planet into the universe? It's Jesus. Who has scooped out the deep oceans? It's Jesus. Who, who stacks all of the mountains up? It is Jesus. Look, who's created you? Who's created me? Who's created every living thing? It is Jesus. In fact, if everything that's been created, if it had a label on it, it would have this phrase, made by King Jesus. Jesus is supreme over all creation. But not only that, not only has everything been created by Jesus, it's also been created through Jesus. Jesus. Notice the prepositions there. Jesus is not only the source of creation, he's also the agent of creation. Uh, Jesus has created the physical world, everything that we see, but also the spiritual world, even the invisible world, the spiritual rulers and the authorities and the satanic and angelic beings, and they all submit to King Jesus. Just as every star submits to Jesus, just as every raindrop submits to Jesus, every setting of the sun submits to Jesus, so too every angelic and satanic being obeys his voice. Look, this is really the theme and the summary of Colossians. What Paul wants us to understand is that seeing the supremacy of our Savior leads to us submitting to our Savior in all things. See, when we understand the intricacies of Jesus's power over creation, both in the minute detail of what we see under a microscope and the vastness of what we see through a telescope, it should fill us with praise. That we're filled with this awe of who Jesus is that leads us to submitting and surrendering ourselves to Jesus in all Things. Look, are you seeing Jesus this morning? Are you really seeing him high and lifted up, the creator of all creation that's been created through him and by him? But not only that, Paul continues, and he says that Jesus is actually the goal of creation at the end of verse 16. That all of creation was made for him. So by him, through him, for him. In other words, the glory of Christ is the goal of the created world. It's all made for his purpose, his pleasure, and his praise. Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11 reiterates this. This is, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the goal. Well, Paul doesn't stop there. It continues. Verse 17, Jesus is supreme over all creation because Jesus is holding it all together. Jesus is sustaining the universe. Verse 17, it says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Look, it is King Jesus who holds every tiny molecule together. It is Jesus who holds in the palm of his hand not just earth, but the entire universe. See, why is it that winter, spring, summer, and fall follow its course? Why is it that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west? Why is it that every flower buds, blooms, fades, and falls? It's because of Jesus. He's he's holding it all together. And look, what is true about the universe is true of your very life this morning. See, whether you realize it or not, Jesus is sustaining you, that he's holding you together. See, part of the all things in verse 17 is your life. And so, look, don't allow the the supremacy of Jesus and and the preeminence of Jesus to negate his personal and intimate involvement in sustaining your life, that he's holding you together. See, what's holding your life together is not your ability to hold your life together. Amen to that? I mean, what's holding your life together is not the fact that you have a neatly organized life. Or or that your your calendar is color-coded and you have everything in order. What's holding your life together is not the fact that your finances are in order or that you've read every book there is about parenting. Your life is not being held together even by your ability to avoid COVID-19 at all costs. Look, all those things are good and fine, but you and I need to be reminded that what's holding us together is King. Jesus, he's the sustainer of all things. See, Paul is helping us here understand the supremacy, the power of Christ, that he is in a league all by himself. So this is the first category, supreme in creation. But secondly here, Jesus is also supreme in the church. Verses 18 through 23, we're going to look at just verses 18 through 20 here. But Paul, again, he's trying to take this doctrine of Jesus's supremacy, and he's trying to help us understand it's not just this distant, cold, abstract doctrine, but it has the power to impact everything. And now he connects it to the church. Well, notice the first thing that he says about Jesus in verse 18. He says that Jesus is actually the head of the body, the church, now, there are all kinds of different images and metaphors throughout the New Testament to describe the church. We have a temple, a building, an army, a family. But the most popularly used image is that of a body. And what Paul is doing here is he's actually trying to describe the full authority that Jesus has being the head over the body, that, that the body is fully dependent upon the head. In other words, if you have a body without a hand or without you know, your pinky toe, like that body is going to be okay. But if you have a body without a head, you have major problems, right? A body without a head is dead, but then you've got other problems if you have a body with multiple heads. That's a monster, right? So what Paul is telling us here, what he's trying to even help the church at Colossae, is that there is one true head over the church, and that is the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. The head of the church is not the lead pastor, it's not the elder council, it's not programs and ministries, it's not even a building, but the one true head over the church who has full authority is Jesus Christ. And so look, I I know you want our church to be as faithful as I do, I know that that's something you pray about. Practically speaking, as we think about what it means to be a church that's living out the power of the gospel, that's vibrant, that's alive, that's on mission, we must keep the main one, the main thing, who is Jesus. That we must have Jesus be preeminent, must be first, must be in a league all by himself. He must be the center of our church. Not all of those other things, not our, our personal preferences, not ministries, not the lead pastor, but it's Jesus who is the center, who is the heartbeat, who is the engine of our church. Paul goes on in verse 18, and and he talks about Jesus being the beginning. He says that Jesus is the firstborn or the the prototype, that same word there, from the And I love how Jesus declares in Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Look, are you tracking with Paul this morning? Are you, are you noticing the argument that he's laying before us? What Paul is saying to us is that if Jesus is supreme over all creation, if Jesus is supreme in the church, if he is the first, if he is uh, the firstborn from the dead, then the conclusion is, at the end of verse 18, is that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent, that he might be first, that he might be the main one. See, this is Paul helping us see, truly see Jesus. He doesn't stop there. He continues on in verse 19. He gives us a couple of reasons why Jesus must be preeminent, why he must have this position in the church. In verse 19, it's because of his incarnation, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. But then in verse 20, the second reason is because of his atonement, that Jesus is the one who has reconciled and is reconciling all things to himself through his blood on the cross, that Jesus is the only means possible for us to be reconciled with God, that Jesus's substitutionary death on the cross, taking our place, dealing with our sin, is the only way for us to be forgiven, and for us to be accepted into God's family. Look, notice what Paul's doing here. Notice how Paul connects the supremacy of Jesus to the sufficiency of Jesus. In other words, because he is preeminent, because he is all-powerful, that means that his blood is able to save us completely. That means that his sacrifice, what he shed on the cross there, can save us and cleanse us Totally, once and for all, because he's supreme, he is sufficient. And so he's reconciling, not just us, but Jesus is reconciling all things. And this is all things in heaven and on earth. Now, this isn't a point for universalism, but this is declaring that there is a day coming in which Christ will bring about harmony of all things, in the new eternal creation at his consummation. And so everything, and this is what I found so encouraging, just thinking about what Christ will do when he returns, that everything that we see in our world today, everything broken, every sin, everything in our own hearts, Jesus will bring to an end. Everything, everything we see in our country, all of the division all of the hatred, all of the injustices that we see, all of the the racism, all of the abuse, all of the the killing of the unborn babies, all of it Jesus is going to bring to an end and he's not just going to fix it. He's going to make all things new. And the reason why that's true is because the supremacy of Jesus again is not distant. It's not abstract but it has the power to impact all things. Did you notice that in this passage, the word all? It's everywhere. Look, verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, all things were created by him. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, he's before all things. Jesus holds all things together. Verse 18, Jesus is preeminent in everything. Verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And now verse 20, Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. Look, the supremacy of Jesus impacts all things. There's nothing that it doesn't touch. And so look, as I close this morning, I wonder what what is Paul's point in this passage? What is Paul trying to say to us? I think what Paul is trying to say is that if this is who Christ really is, then you and I, we don't make Jesus preeminent. We don't make him supreme. Jesus already is. And so the question is, is are you orienting your life around the preeminence and the supremacy of Jesus? Or are you living by the most tragic illusion in the world and that is that Jesus isn't preeminent. You're actually preeminent. That you're actually the center of the universe and everything revolves around you. See, Jesus is preeminent. We need to then structure our lives, every arena uh, around the supremacy uh, of Christ. And so look, are you the center of your marriage or is Jesus? Are you the center of, of your parenting or is Jesus Jesus? Are you the center of your, of your friendships, of, of your work, of, of how you think about trials and suffering and, and on and on? Or is Jesus at the center? Is he the one who is preeminent? So again, seeing the supremacy of our Savior should lead to our submission to our Savior in all things. See, seeing Jesus leads to submitting to him in all things. And taking that, seeing him, will impact every area, impact our desires, it'll impact our obedience, it'll impact how we spend our time, how we use our money, how we use the gifts that God has given us. Look, is Jesus the preeminent one in your life? I love this quote by J.C. Ryle, talking about the intimacy that we can have with Jesus. He says that you'll never grow as a Christian Until you develop a personal intimacy with the Lord Jesus, until you deal with him as you would a best friend, you turn to him first in every need, consult him at every step, talk to him about all your difficulties, spread before him all your sorrows, allow him to to share in all your joys, do all things as in his sight, to go through every day leaning on him. Like I know you want that intimacy with Jesus. I want that intimacy with Jesus. But you'll never develop true intimacy with Jesus unless you see him for who he really is in all of his glory, in his matchless supremacy, in his preeminence. So Let's like, Do you see Jesus this morning? Do you really see him? Let's pray together. God, we praise you and. Glory, we thank you that we can see Jesus, not because of our own power, our own ability, but because of your work in the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, we pray that you continue to give us spiritual eyes to see the beauty, the matchless power of King Jesus. God, I pray that you'd give us wisdom to know how to connect the preeminence of Jesus to our lives practically. God, I pray that we would live lives that are pointing that are showcasing the glory of Christ and how we live. We pray that you'd help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.